Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock. Aaron has served as a pastor, a professor, and a chaplain, and he has a keen interest in helping other Christians think Christianly about all of life. On this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Yeoman, and today we are going to talk about God, politics, and nationalism. This should be an interesting discussion. Many of us know that, or well, you will know that we believe in the separation of church and state in that each institution has its own purpose in the world. Uh, so what does the role God, Christians, and government play in human culture and how do they intersect? That's what we want to deal with today. Many Christians believe we should just steer clear of political dialogue, that somehow it muddles our Christian mission as Christians. But we want to wrestle with some of these questions and get them tackled for good. So Aaron, I know you believe in a separation of church and state, but people can have a ton of different ideas about what that looks like and means. So what do you mean when you say that? It is definitely a hot topic in light of the U.S. elections, in light of the discussions that are taking place around Christian nationalism, in light of the the Church at War conference in Waterloo, which uh, starts today, in light of uh, what has taken place in our own country and in, in other countries with regard to lockdown and authority and all these sorts of things converging, it is a hot topic. So it's a great thing to discuss. So first of all, I would acknowledge, as all Christians would, that the church is a, a spiritual organism. So when I say church, I mean capital C church. The universal church is a spiritual organism. It is the body of Christ. So we acknowledge that. But the fact of the matter is that local churches, assemblies of believers that come together to worship Christ and celebrate the, um, the resurrected Lord, we exist within various states as do civil governments, as do families, as do employers, as do dogs and cats. We exist within various states around the world. And so technically, when we talk about the separation of church and state, it might be more accurate to say that we actually believe in the separation of church authority from government authority. That might be a little bit more accurate. And that we would acknowledge that each institution that God has ordained has its own job description. It's, it has its own authority structures given to it by God. What we don't affirm when we talk about the separation of church and state is the separation of God from state. We don't affirm that. So here, here are some things that we would oppose. So we, we would oppose statism, for example. So statism is essentially whereby the, the, the government the, the civil authorities, if you will, within a state claim to have prevailing authority over all facets of life, whether it's defining marriage or affirming marriage or uh, educating your children. So those would all be statist tactics, tactics to control the, the creational institution of marriage and the family, or whether they would... Uh, believe it's within their purview to have authority over the local church or to, in China, for example, appoint and train certified pastors to pastor the churches that are legal, or whether they have the authority to determine who can work and who can't work. These That's statism, so we're not in favor of that. That's where the state has absolute authority. Nor are we in favor of libertarianism, whereby the individual says, no, I don't, I don't agree in government, 
I have authority unto myself. I have liberty to do and act the way I want. We don't agree with that. Nor do we agree with anarchy, whereby the citizen pits him or herself against the civil authority and fails to honor duly appointed government. And fourth, we would oppose secularism, which is this fake notion that you can have a, a godless state that we're within which everybody gets along. This is an attempt, secularism is an attempt not to guard the separation of church authority and state authority or the, the institutional veracity of church authority and state authority, but secularism is actually an attempt to separate God from government. And we would oppose that. So let me just say that again. Secularism is the attempt to separate God from government. And many Christians affirm that. We disaffirm that. We do not think that's indicative of the scriptural model. Uh, the reality is, on a very practical level, when you when you try to do that, another authority always plays the role of God. So it's actually impossible in practice to get away from having an ultimate moral authority in every state. So we would deny all of that. So hopefully that's helpful in in differentiating the difference between separating church authority and state authority and separating God from state. Yeah. Okay. So then let's, all, let's also tackle this term Christian nationalism. It's come up a bunch of times that can scare people if it's not understood. Yeah. Um, so what do you mean by that? And what are the arguments then for and against it as well? Yeah. So first of all, we do not mean white nationalism at all. This is not some sort of a racial construct, nor do we mean that we want a system whereby the church is controlling the government. Churches, Christians, should hold the government to account as moral voices, as representatives of God, as people who understand the word. We should hold governments accountable to govern justly, but we're not talking about a denomination or even the church as a whole controlling the government. That's not what we mean. Nor do we mean taking a partisan position. So it's not like this whole left-wing, right-wing thing. It's not It's not like we're saying, oh, uh, nationalism means there's one specific party that should always be voted for and that represents God's purposes on earth. No, we're not saying that. Although the fact of the matter is, is that in ev every country, if you have a multi-party system and you lay out your options on the table, there's there's going to be one that presumably is more reflective overall of God's design for how people should be governed than others. But it's not like a partisan thing per se, although it, the individual Christian who's voting their conscience is going to set their eyes, their their hopes on parties or maybe even in, in, this, in the case of a monarchy on the, the, uh, the hereditary appointment of a new monarch that will better uphold God's laws, God's purposes in, in culture. But here's the thing. There's, there's three, I th I th there's probably going to be more, but as this discussion is unfolding, there's sort of three arguments that I'm hearing that uh, kind of against Christian nationalism. The, the main one would be more historical. They, the opponents of Christian nationalism would often say, well, Past generations messed it up. Whenever the state, whenever the, whenever Christians get involved in politics, they always mess things up. Well, I don't think that's true. I think there's truth to that. Uh, obviously, we have 
an ideal, which would be that the state would acknowledge, the government within a state would acknowledge the supremacy of God, which interestingly, in theory, it does in Canada, it does in the US. I mean, read our constituting documents. So we, we were not uh, of the mindset that people can't mess it up. Obviously, if you, if you have, let's say, Canada or the US starts to become governed more and more by biblical laws. So let's say our judiciaries, our educational systems, our medical structures increasingly become more Christianized as they historically were. And then, you know, it goes too far and a particular denomination tries to run all the candidates and take control of government. Well, obviously that would be a problem, but it the problem is is in that problem. The problem problem is not in the ideal or the construct. Mm-hmm. So yes, we have to be careful about how this would unpack itself in any given nation. But it's not an argument to say, well, we, we we've looked back at history, and whenever Christians get too involved in politics, they it tends to become, you know, an ecclesiastically governed state, and that's not right, or a particular denomination takes control and then asks for state funding and yada, yada, yada. So we're not going to do it. No, I mean, look look at the system we have now and how's that working? Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a state that's sanctioning the uh, death of the unborn that is uh, sanctioning the death of people now that um, have mental illness. So this made bill, the medical assistance mm-hmm. in dying, our government is now talking about applying that to people of mental illness. And that's not that's not great. So the more biblical laws, Christian laws, are recognized in culture, the more that restrains evil. Um, secondly, an argument against this would be from those that would see the gospel as merely an evacuation plan, an exit mm-hmm. strategy. So in that might, now we do know we that on a on a certain level, this world is not our home, and meaning that this world is corrupted, it's wicked. There is a lot of deviancy until God makes all things new that will persist. And so we do acknowledge that there needs to be conversion. People need to be saved by the blood of a lamb. People need to be born again. We do believe in regeneration. We do believe in justification by grace through faith alone. That's like the the, the core message to the gospel when it comes to its application to us. But at the same time, the gospel, as we've talked about in past episodes, is about the sovereignty of God over all things, but because it's predicated upon the lordship of Christ, that he is king of kings and lord of lords. But some would say, no, it's just, it's the gospel is just our evacuation plan. Let's let the world go to hell in a handbasket. It's, it's sort of a, a form of pietism mixed with a personal benefit gospel. So there's the prosperity gospel, which many hyper-charismatics believe in, where it's like health, wealth, and prosperity, blab it and grab it, name it and claim it kind of theology, that the core of the gospel is about making you rich and wealthy. Well, that's not actually that far removed from a personal benefit gospel, which says the gospel is all about you getting saved. No, it's not. The, The mission of God is actually the glory of God. And God is King of Kings. He's Lord of Lords. Christ is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And and within all within that broad understanding of the gospel, there is a opportunity provided to us by the sovereign God for us to 
come to faith in Jesus Christ, repent of our sins and believe. We, we know that. But it's not just about the benefit of the gospel to you, Chris, or the benefit of the gospel to me, like my salvation. It's ultimately we step back, we're like, yeah, we benefit from it, but we're concerned about God's glory over all things, solo deo gloria, for God to be recognized alone as worthy of our honor and praise. And third, some would just uh, suggest, well, if you talk about politics, which we often do, it's you're fixated on it. Well, I don't think so, but it is the elephant in the room. I mean, in World War II, I would imagine pretty much every day people were talking about Hitler and the Allied forces and Axis forces. I would imagine that came up a lot. I would imagine during Vietnam in the US, that was a daily conversation. Um, you know, we tend to talk about the things that are most relevant, that are in our face all the time. And especially in the last couple of years, we've seen the politicians in our Western nations become like high priests and high priestesses of a new neo-pagan order. So it's it's not that we're fixated on politics per se, but we are fixated on God. And when people shirk his authority, usurp his authority and bring destruction to people, yeah, it, it talks about it. We talk about it. So the lies are flowing fast and furious in our direction. So why would we not be speaking back fastly and furiously, you know, in the mm -hmm. other direction? Yeah. And not just uh, lies in general, but obviously we've talked about transgressing spheres of authority. So when the state transgresses its sphere and comes into territory that is church territory, obviously we speak about it because we were speaking about it before. It just, it's now political because the state's in it. Does that make sense? Yeah. And when we talk about lies, um, I'm sort of in including all of that, anything that's not true. Which, so a lie would be that the state would have authority over the church, for example. And you know, that's something that people are thinking a lot about. Yeah. When it comes to the arguments for the idea of Christian nationalism, as you've defined it, what would those be? Well, Jesus said in uh, Luke eleven twenty three, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Think about that. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. So let's put it this way. If you're a husband and you're sort of passive, which can be one of the classical male sins, you're not leading your family. You think, well, I may not be leading, but I'm passive. At least I'm not leading my family away. That's false. If a father or husband is not leading his wife or family toward Christ, you're actually leading them away from Christ. If a pastor, an elder, is not leading his congregation toward Christ, you're leading them away from Christ. If a government is not leading their nation toward Christ, they're actually leading their nation away from Christ. We have to crush this myth of spiritual neutrality. Again, Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So you're either gathering or scattering. You're either with Christ or you're against Christ. So when it comes to thinking about God in his relationship to the state, if the state is not pro-Christ, it's anti-Christ. If a husband is not pro-Christ, 
he's antichrist. If parents aren't pro-Christ, they're antichrist. And that's a that's basic Bible there. So we concern ourselves with these things. Now, on a very practical level, we talk about our engagement with politics or our concern that the nations would increasingly acknowledge the kingship of Christ and their legal structures and their educational systems, their medical institutions, and obviously in churches, because a lot of quote-unquote churches have abandoned Jesus. Wokeism is their new God, or the state is their new God. And there's others that are probably floating somewhere between are just thoroughly confused. Let's just talk very practically for a moment. So sometimes when I hear people say, why are we involved in politics? Let's just preach the gospel. Okay, well, the reason why we would call that pietism, which is kind of like a super spirituality, just to focus on spiritual matters, is think, think about life. So here we are, we're sitting in a room, and it's actually a little bit warm in here. Someone turned the heat up a little too high, but out in the hallway, it's a little cool. And as physical beings, we're aware of that. Um, we're aware of our thirst. So if we're, if, if we're dehydrated, we need to get some liquid into us. If we're hungry, we need to eat. We concern ourselves with shelter. You know, we, we want to make sure our houses are ready for the winter, the Canadian winter. We concern ourselves with family. People want to get married, have kids. I'm looking forward to, you know, having a grandchild next year. These are things we concern ourselves with. We we cut our grass. Would anybody deny, like, would, would there be anybody within the sound of my voice that would deny that we're physical beings? That as individuals, we concern ourselves all the time with physical issues? Well, in my mind, politics is is like that. It's like the heat. It's like our concern with air conditioning, food, water, shelter, family. It's a... Politics is part of the reality, if you will, of our physical condition. And politics affects, think about this, politics affects your ability to get heat, to pay for fuel. There's a lot of debate about energy. Politics affects the definition of what a family even is. It affects whether you're permitted to by the state to homeschool or not, to, to, to exercise parental authority. It, it affects the definition of marriage. It affects the definition of the security of one's own property. It affects everything. Like politics is not some pie in the sky out there disconnected from reality subject. Politics is about physical life. It's about the structures, the decisions that are made by civil governments over uh, all of life. And frankly, a, a failure to acknowledge this, like every man is a political animal. Like we're, we are political creatures. It's impossible to disconnect from the political realm. We are innately bound in the here and now to political structures. And frankly, it's naive, pietistic, and a, a failure to steward the physical world around you to say, oh, we don't need to concern ourselves with that. Are you kidding me? You can, you concern. It's also hyper individualistic because these other things. Mm-hmm. So if I concern myself with my heating bill, my food, my family, my clothes, these sorts of things, that's me, 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 me. That's individualism. Politics tends to be a bit more collectively concerned. So how, how do state decisions on a collective level affect the collective whole's ability to have food or water, you know, to, fresh water to drink, or the ability to raise your family and children, educate your children. 
it's it's str- very strange to me that there's this radical dichotomy between the physical world that I concern myself with as an individual and political structures. So every man is a political creature. And by the way, from a uh, biblical perspective, Christ is king. That's a very, very political mm-hmm. statement. So Jesus, Jesus, of course, didn't approve of many of the systems in his day. It's not like he was, hey, you know, thumbs up to the Sadducees or thumbs up to the Pharisees or thumbs up to the Romans. To be to engage as a Christian in political issues is to just live your life as a human being, to concern yourself with food supply and freedom to worship and freedom to raise your family and the ability to drive on roads. Why wouldn't we concern ourselves with these things? Jesus, of course, didn't side with one political party. He could have said, well, the Pharisees and the, Pharisees and the Sadducees are both corrupt, but the Sadducees had a really wacky view. They denied the resurrections. They're sort of more theologically aberrant. So I'm going to go with the, the Sadducee or the Pharisees. He was constantly confronting them. The The Roman state wasn't, wasn't like the, every single thing the Roman state did was evil and bad and tyrannical, but he still didn't have a problem with, um, you know, confronting uh, the the whole of the state with claims to his ultimate authority. You know, he talked about the kingdom of God being near in 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 Matthew one fifteen. He didn't have a problem with um, charging the temple and you know th- throwing everybody out in uh, Mark eleven. You know, he called him a den of thieves. He didn't say, well, you know what. I'm just, my gospel is just about an evacuation plan. Who cares if they're worshiping materialism in the temple? That's not of concern to me. I'm just going to get people to heaven, just want to get them born again. No, he, he saw in the here and now when there was an abuse of authority or sacrilege that that needed to be uh, confronted. Um, even when Jesus talks in Matthew 22 about uh, you know, rendering to Caesar that which is Caesar's. People like to focus on the taxation element of that, and that needs to be discussed. But I think what he's doing there is he's actually also innately calling into question or asking the question, who will you worship as supreme? Like, render to see that which is Caesar's and to God that which is God's. Like, who, who are you worshiping? Who are you following here? Who Who is is your supreme? So those those would be some... some uh, arguments, I guess, for this idea of, again, Christian nationalism or more accurately promoting God's principles and values into culture, including into the the political sphere. Mm -hmm. Okay. So this term nationalism that you mentioned, let's probably want to unpack that just a little bit more, even though we've discussed it before. I think it's worth returning to what's in contrast to what, what does it mean nationalism itself? Sure. So sure. So nationalism is not anti-immigration. It's not like uh, let's just build walls around countries. It's not anti-missionary. It's not denying the need to send people to far off places in our world. It's not a failure to care less about the world. It's not like I don't I don't care about what happens south of the border. I don't care what happens in other countries. I just concern myself with my own country. It's not that. But fundamentally, nationalism is the opposite of globalism. So what's globalism? Well, globalism is just a newfangled version of what happened in the Tower of Babel. It's neo-babalism. It's new babalism. 
It's the same fundamental idea that led to the scattering of the nations in the you know, early centuries of our existence as human beings. When, when, a, when the globe, when people around the world come together to try to fix problems, to try to usher in like a, a better world, a more utopian world, a more perfect world, and yet in doing that, failure to surrender to the, two, the, the true King of Kings and Lord of Lords, it always turns out to be a disaster. Authority structures, when they're merged into one, when you know the globalist ideal, we see this in the, this is why people push back so much against the World Economic Forum, or at least they should. It's not that some seminal ideas might not have some justification or that they might not be putting their finger on some broken aspects of culture, but their fix is let's all, let's get everybody together. Let's get all the, the rulers and, and players in the world together and let's create this, let's hit the reset button. Let's create this new world order. And the, the flaw at the core of that is God is not invited into the room. The creator who created all men is not invited into the room. And what, what happens is it's just a new form of paganism that emerges. So when when God was, um, when, when the Genesis record in Genesis 11 describes Babel, one of the things we see in there is people are saying, let us, let us do this, let us do that. Let's all, let's all come together, let us do that. It's Babel, neo-Babelism or globalism is predicated on the exact same theology. It's a let us theology. It's a, Chris, we can figure it out mm -hmm. theology. And what nationalism is, when God looked down at Babel, he scattered the nations. Nationalism is the simple, historic, biblical notion that nationhood is God's idea and ideal in the current order. Is it the eschatological ideal? No. But it's the current ideal, in the, it's, the, it's God's idea in the, in the current order. So when God saw this coming together to try to create this global world in Babel, he said, this is in, uh, from Genesis eleven six, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Well, that wasn't God being insecure. Mm -hmm. And it certainly wasn't a compliment. Man, these people have a lot of ingenuity. It was God acknowledging or stating that things are gonna get really bad. Like, so things are gonna get worse. There, what does it mean by nothing will be impossible? Uh, a, a rise in idolatry, self-worship, a casting off of God, a lack of reliance upon God, a, a belief that you can fix the world if you can just bring everybody together in some sort of a empty form of, of unity. It's like the whole global peace movement, right? It's like peace, man, let's peace out. What's the basis of peace? Christ. What's the basis of true love? Christ. What's the basis of grace? Christ. What's the basis of mercy? Christ. All of these concepts are literally empty shells unless Christ fills them. So nationhood doesn't fix evil, but it restrains it and it localizes it. We see this, like right now, North Korea is a really, really bad place to be, but South Korea is a little bit better. And what evil uh, nationhood does is it restrains evil. So at different points in history, you're gonna have, if you wanna put them on a scale, you're gonna have really, really, really bad nations, and then you're gonna have some much, much better ones. You can have perfect ones, no but you're gonna have much, much better ones.
if, even if you go to the New Testament in Acts 17, verse 26, the statement is made, and he made from one man every uh, nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. So that's anti-racism. We don't believe in races. But then it says, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So we're we're anti-racist, but pro-nationhood. So anti-racist, but pro-nationhood. The globalists are claim that we're pro-racist and you know anti-unity. No, we're anti-racist, and the best way to operate in the current order is to advocate for nationhood. In Deuteronomy 32.8, it says, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, then he divided mankind. Sometimes division's a good thing. It's a necessary thing. He fixed the borders of the people according to the numbers of the sons of God. We didn't have a problem with this on a family level. Like, I don't want to live in your house, Chris. Sorry, dude, but I don't want to live in your house, and you don't want to live in mine. And, you know, we're, we're brothers in Christ, and we have our own families, and we're, you know, we're grateful to come together and, and to live together and to care for one another and to worship together. But we all have our own residences, mm-hmm. and we acknowledge the sort of the sovereignty, if you will, of each household. When you leave and cleave, when a man leaves and cleaves to his wife and they form a new household, there's a, there's a sovereignty to that, and that's a good thing. It, it restrains evil. And mm-hmm. it's it's um, uh, you know a, a blessing and a benefit. In heaven, there won't be marriage. There won't be giving and receiving in marriage. There won't be family units. But in the here and now, it's a good thing. Now, that doesn't mean that all the national boundaries throughout history have been taken justly. Obviously, people have fought for them, sometimes justly and sometimes unjustly. It doesn't mean that human sin hasn't infected national structures. But it's kind of an extension and application. You mentioned earlier sphere sovereignty. It's an extension and application of sphere sovereignty. Does that mean that no one else is ever allowed within our borders? No. You know, we're to be hospitable to the alien and the stranger, the sojourner, obviously, as long as they're not intended to, intending to bring harm. Mm-hmm. But there, ha- there has to be some common sense there, too. So the same with my house. If some guy's stumbling down the road in front of my house, starving to death, uh, you know, un- unemployed, unable to find work, uh, living on the street. It's my responsibility as a Christian to take him in and to care for him, but not necessarily permanently. Mm-hmm. It's not like, hey, I'm I'm your dad now. You're one of my sons. It's not like everybody that stumbles by my house has a right to has a some right to live in my house. You know, inherit my possessions and be treated as a son or daughter. It's not. There's not some right there. As a general rule, we exercise wisdom and loving discernment and benevolence when someone is in need. And in the same way, countries can be discriminate in that regard. If there's a legitimate need and there's refugees, you know, we take refugees into our country all the time. But it's not like oh, everybody just has the the right to enter any other nation whenever they want. That's that's not a biblical concept. People have this idea that's somehow mm-hmm. the the Christian thing to do. No. And if people are you know, entering your country uh, contrary to the just laws of your country, you have you have a right to defend your borders. So it's, it's as simple as that. Nationalism is the antithesis to globalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very helpful, and I think especially highlighting because some when you put it in contrast to globalism, it makes more sense. Some would say nationalism is prim- primarily self interest. You're interested in your own nation to the exclusion of other nations. Well, there is some truth to that. I mean, I'm interested in my family to a greater degree than I'm interested in yours. 
Is that a bad thing? No, it's my stewardship. I, I have an authority over my wife and my children that I don't have over yours. That's that's your job. So we each kind of have our own job descriptions. But at the same time, I mean, I love your family. I want you to do well. You know, I know you've come out to my place and helped me with stuff. I'm still waiting to be invited to to help you pour that. The driveways next, yeah, yeah. next year. <laughs> so, um, you know, I love your kids. I love chatting with your kids. You've been very good to mine. My kids obviously respect you and whatnot. So we, we take an interest, but I don't, I don't have like that burden of authority, that burden mm-hmm. of responsibility to make everyone else's family work. Mm-hmm. And in the same way, you know, I, I am concerned about what takes place in Romania, England, the United States, China, as well as my own country, but I'm more concerned with my own country mm-hmm. because this is part of my stewardship. God permitted me to be born here. I'm a citizen of this country and 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 that's okay. I, I can't split my interests equally, you know, everywhere. That's good. So let's turn to Jesus and chat about whether he was political or not. Because this comes up all the time. It's like don't be like Jesus. Jesus wasn't political, whatever else, right? Sure. Yeah. So people say, were, were Jesus, was Jesus political? Was Paul political? Was Peter political? And they're, they're thumbing through the Bible through their red letter edition of the New Testament, just looking for that that statement where Jesus is like, hey guys, you need to be political. That's yep. essentially what we're being asked, that proof text. Now, my response to that is, well, what do you mean by political? So let's just talk about like, what do you mean by political? So the way I see it, Politics is about life in the now. It's about questions of authority. Who has authority? I'll say it again over the church, over the building of roads, over the enforcement of law, over the education of children. Who has authority over employment law, work law, pay pay structures? Who has authority over worship? Who has authority over food? How, what are the systems and structures that provide food and water? Who has authority over property laws. So if someone were to say to me, like, where do you see in the Bible Jesus or the apostles getting political? Well, maybe here's a better series of questions that I would ask back. And they would include, well, does, does the Bible as a whole, God's word as a whole, so putting your red letter New Testament aside where you somehow elevate just the strict words of Jesus as if those are more biblical than the rest of scripture. We would deny red letter Christianity. The entire Bible from cover to cover is the inspired and fallible and errant word of God and is profitable for teaching, for correction, for rebuke, for training in righteousness. So we affirm the whole canon of scripture. And Jesus, obviously, his words are extremely important to us. But from the perspective of authority, the whole of God's word is equally authoritative because ultimately it's given to us by God. So when you look at Jesus' words, Paul's words, Peter's words, Luke's words, Isaiah's words, does the Bible speak at all to issues like theft in the here and now? Mm -hmm. Does it speak to, is there any command to work? Is there any teaching in the scripture about the consequences of not working. Are, is there anything in the Bible about the sanctity of life? Is there anything in the Bible about finances or taxation? Is there anything in the Bible about justice for the widow and orphan? How about nationhood? Yes, we've already talked about that. Is there anything in the scriptures about the treatment of the alien, the stranger, the sojourner? 
Did did can we think of anybody in the Bible, aka Paul, that ever appealed to civil authority for justice? Is there anything in the Bible that speaks about the state having authority over public justice? Is there anything in the Bible about parental authority, about the husband's authority? Is there anything in the scriptures that define marriage? Is there anything in the Bible about bodily stewardship? And we could go on and on and on, right? These are all concerns that we have in the here and now, in this world. And the answer to to, to every one of those questions is yes, 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 yes. Does the Bible speak about justification by grace through faith alone, the depravity of man, the electing purposes of God, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Yes, 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 yes. But the Bible also speaks about life in the here and now, about property ownership. You can't just go steal someone's possessions. You cannot steal someone's wife. Mm -hmm. Marriage is between one man and woman for life. Divorce is, is not cool. There's all, Children are to honor their parents on and on and on and on. There's the Bible from one cover to the next is chocked full of teaching that relates to real, the reality of life in the here and now, about who has authority over the local church, about the limited nature of government, on and on and on and on and on. Chris, that's politics. Mm-hmm. So does the Bible speak about politics? Absolutely. It's, it's a political book. It's talking about politics all the time, every man is a political creature and the world is a political environment. And just as the, the faithfulness of a collection of elders over the church in terms of teaching and directing the church is going to impact the trajectory of that church, so the, the, the way the, the civil government weighs in uh, on these issues, or maybe a better term, we wades into it. The, 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 the greater the effect it's going to have. So in addition to lots of conversations about justification by grace through faith alone, yes, these are subjects of politics. Mike Thiessen made an interesting comment. He, he basically said, you know, the Bible says man does not live by bread alone, but he does live by bread, just doesn't live by it alone. Mm-hmm. So we are physical creatures. In the Lord's Prayer, we pray for our daily bread. We don't just pray for another dose of the Holy Spirit or something like that. We, we're we physical beings. We live in a, we're incarnational beings in this weird dualistic gospel that says, no, the, the, the gospel is all about an evacuation plan, an exit strategy. It's like we're, you know, we're firing up the rockets to blast off the planet to another place. It's so reductionistic and, you know, it needs to be confronted. Uh, by the way, in, in uh, Acts 4, when Peter and John were challenged by the authorities and then they're released and they return to the believers, I wanted to kind of read this, this prayer that, um, you know, they, they pray together. They pray, Sovereign Lord, this is in uh, Acts uh, 4, 24 and following. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, so his sovereignty overall, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain and the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed son familiar? So they're speaking like, why why is it that the nations are constantly, God is sovereign, but they're always pushing back. They're always trying to push him out of the equation. They're always trying to build their new tower of Babel. They're always trying to do things their own way. They're always trying to usurp his authority. They're always trying to claim 
statist control. That's kind of the idea there. It goes on to say in verse 27, for truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed, and he names political authorities, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So there we have, they're, they're, speak, they're addressing the breach of authority by civil government, by the nations, by the kings of the earth, but they also are quite comfortable to step back and say, yeah, but we understand that God is still in control of all things. So it's not like an either or where we either have to let go and let God yep. uh, or just become you know, political fiends where that's all we think about. If we can just get the right party in office, it's going to fix the world. It's not that. It's it's both. We concern ourselves with with both that – we do live in a world where political authorities need to be confronted by citizens, by godly Christians, by members of his church. It doesn't necessarily have to be the church as like local church as a whole, but the, we are Christians. We're part of churches, but we're also citizens of a country. And in in our uh, you know collective worship, we we address matters of truth because the Bible addresses it, but we. Uh, matters of truth when it comes to civil government and abuse is, is kind of what I mean there. But at the same time, we we are content with the sovereignty of God, that God is is working on all things for our benefit and, and his ultimate glory. So you, you don't actually need to abandon the gospel in order to engage in quote-unquote politics. Uh, you need to acknowledge that in a world that there's going to be bad people that rage against God confront them, pray for them, debate them, and discover, uh, discuss, I should say, uh, the, you know, the efforts, make people aware of the efforts of the kings of this world to usurp Christ's authority. So the bottom line is, Chris, if the gospel is um, merely thought of as God's evacuation plan for you, then your gospel will just focus on you hmm. and... I don't think that's a full gospel. But if you see that the gospel is God's offer of forgiveness and redemption for you, but it's also part of God's overarching plan to unite all things in himself, then the gospel becomes about him. And again, we would say sola deo gloria to that. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, it talks about, Christ's plan, the plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. We look forward to that. And in the here and now, he he is advancing his kingdom. He's expanding his rule. He is uniting people from the tribes, tongues, nations of the world uh, to himself. So that's a good thing. He, he wants to ultimately bring all things into submission to his lordship. Uh, if you're in a position of authority, let me just leave you with this. If you're not leading people toward Christ, you're leading them away from Christ, and you will be held accountable to that. So whether you're in a position of authority in marriage, over your children, in your church, in your employment, or in statecraft, in government, in law enforcement, in education, you are not a spiritually neutral person. You are either leading people toward Christ or you're leading him, them away from Christ. So lead them toward Christ. And that means we need to engage God with 
politics, with education, with law, with, with all of life for his honor and glory alone. It's good. And that's essentially what it means to think Christianly in all those spheres is bringing Christ to bear in each and every area. Thank you, Aaron, for that. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in today. And hopefully you've been blessed by this. And if you have, we just ask that you would share it with others. It's really helpful to us to get the word out via your sharing post on social media, various platforms, sending an email. Um, We really appreciate that. You can hear the Leadership Now podcast both on the CJXC radio twice a week, as well as on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network's app. Make sure to download that app and get that podcast as well as others. As well, you can also find the the podcast over on Aaron's personal blog, pursuitofglory.org. We hope you tune in next week to another episode of Leadership Now with Dr. Aaron Roth.